Our scripture this morning is Psalm 51. Let's hear these words and allow the Lord to work in our hearts to bring us to repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. I want to encourage you, if you're sitting on the inside aisle, to take our friendship pad. And if you will, member, regular attender, and guest alike, if you'll share your name with us. And then when it reaches the end of the aisle, the pew, if you'll send it back and you can take note of who you're worshiping with. This morning we're going to uh, end our summer glance at the Psalms as long ago songs for the here and now blues. And what I've said by way of this morning's title is the subject is guilt and shame. But I think you're going to find that uh, I'm going to focus more on the remedy for guilt and shame, the strategy that David gives us out of his struggle with guilt and shame to combat and dispel the clouds of guilt and shame with repentance. So repentance could properly be said that repentance is the subject. This morning... If I could give you an abstract visual, it would be, imagine that the blue sky is your life. And there's a radiant sun shining in the blue sky, but there are also clouds 
And on any given day, there are white clouds, puffy clouds, clouds that don't look very threatening, but they're there. And another day, they're very dark clouds, ominous clouds, clouds that serve to to depress us or to make us feel a, a heaviness under the weather. Those clouds could be white clouds of guilt, and dark clouds would be shame. Guilt, in my mind, guilt is the conscience on fire. Guilt is what we feel when we sin, when we break a rule, when we um, commit an offense, when we do something. Or guilt can be our conscience registering that something is wrong when we leave something undone. For instance, let's say that um, today you have a critical tongue and you've taken opportunity to let somebody know that you're displeased with them. But you, you do more than express your displeasure. You begin to cut on their character. You begin to insult them. You begin to ridicule them. You, be, you may be unmindful. You're just correcting. I'm just speaking the truth in love. you know. But you're critical of that person. That, later that afternoon, later this afternoon, after that, quiet moment, you're like, "Ah, I did it again. I was, I was critical. I did something. I feel, oh, I feel the guilt of it. But what about no tongue at all? The Bible says that we're to build one another up, that we're to encourage one another. What about feeling guilty for the things that we leave undone? And then there's shame. And shame is different from guilt. And shame is hard for me. Shame is hard for me to really define. So I'm going to take a stab at it. As well as I can understand shame, it's deeper than a sense of something that I've done or something that I've left undone. Shame is the char or the burn in my conscience, if it were a house, when it's on fire, I feel guilt. Something's wrong. I've done something wrong or I've left something undone. But shame is, after the fire is over, is the char, the remains, the burnt lumber, the burnt plumbing, the smell, the stink, the dark, the stain. Shame is not so much what I have done or not done, it's who I am. You go over into shame when you begin to so identify with sin that you say, it's not simply something outside of me, it's not simply something that I've done, it is me! It's not that I have sinned, it's more, it's I am a sinner, it's me! I uh, spent, as I have been doing for uh, a number of weeks, I spent uh, part of my day on Friday with my friend Fred. And 
Fred is his real name, and uh, just a little disclaimer here, I have Fred's permission to share anything that can be helpful about his life. But Fred is a sexual offender. Fred went to prison, federal prison, because of his offense. Fred will be in counseling for the rest of his life. Once a week for the rest of his life, he goes to see a counselor. And Fred would tell you that it was in prison that he came to see two things. Number one, while he was incarcerated, he saw that his offense was not victimless. That there were people that he was hurting by his actions. And by the way, Fred is not a Uh, a molester, his issues are more with pornography. But he would tell you, secondly, he came to see that his sin was not something simply outside of him. It wasn't something that he would simply do in isolation and then be done. It was something that was a part of him. He came to see himself as a perpetrator He came to see himself as a criminal. He came to see himself as a sinner. Not someone who was sinning alone and against people, but that he was that guy. And it drove him, it drove him to the sun. Those clouds of guilt of his actions, and the shame, the shame, the shame that it was him. He had to identify that it wasn't simply something outside of him, but it was inside of him. It was him. He was sin. He was sinful. And he couldn't remove it. He couldn't change. And it drove him to the Son. The Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ today has so transformed Fred that I wish he could come and preach this sermon. I wish that he could tell you the message from his perspective. I wish that he could come and teach you. But instead, we've got an even more wonderful teacher in that we have David. The subtitle of Psalm 1 sets this up as a story, an actual historic event of where Shane has already prayed about in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, you can read the specific account of David's story. Historically recorded where as a king of Israel, he committed not simply one act, but multiple acts. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 12, He's confronted. And once confronted, he reacted. He reacted appropriately when he fell. It's a good test question for me. How do I react when I'm caught in sin? How do I react when I fall in sin? How do I react after I've given in to temptation once again? What do I do then? David's initial response is to cover and cover and hide and press down and keep it in the dark. But God 
in His great mercy and steadfast love was not satisfied for Him to leave His deeds in the dark. And it was a great mercy that through Nathan, and then I would say using the power of the Holy Spirit and Nathan as a prophet to speak to his heart, he came to his heart and he turned a light on. And there in that light, the deeds of the dark died. The light, the sun, drove the cloud of guilt and shame away. If you look, you'll see in verse 2, it says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I do not believe that iniquity is a synonym, a pure synonym of sin. It's sin, but it's something else. It's to-the-bone sin. It's shame. You'll see it again where he goes in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. Well, if it's the same as sin, he didn't say, Behold, I was brought forth in sin and in sin. We all struggle. We all struggle with both a guilt and also a residual or a growing sense of shame as we identify ourselves with that sin. And I am talking this morning, time will not permit me to talk about those that rightfully struggle with a sense of shame because of something that was done to you. I wish that I could address that this morning. But this morning, I'm going to focus more in the time that remains to me on the shame And what do we do with it that we experience when we have done something and we have come to be so burdened by it as to identify with it and say, that's me. I've become that sin. Now, very quickly, let me share with you three stories of shame. But everybody in here has a story. And as I'm speaking, you might do well to go down to subpoint number three under the first point and put your name and maybe encode using some type of cryptic, you know, uh, words there. Recount your story of shame. And somebody's like, if you have to think really hard, you don't have one. But I don't think you have to think very hard because you do have one. But... David had a story of shame. David's story of shame began way back, way back in Jerusalem when he was on a rooftop and all of his army and his commanders were out doing battle. They were were men that were loyal to the king and loyal to the cause of God. God and his holy city, Jerusalem, and they were fighting for God and for country, but not David. David is now a king, and in his luxury on that rooftop, he was a voyeur. He began to look down upon all of those around him. He is the king, high and lifted up. Many, all the resources in his kingdom are at his disposal. And he looks, and that great wealth and his strength, 
And he looks upon all of these rooftops and he sees a woman bathing. And her name is Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba is sent for and David sleeps with Bathsheba. Bathsheba is a married woman. And as he sleeps with her, she later sends word to him that she is pregnant. Now her husband is a man by the name of Uriah. And you find Uriah coming up way back before David was a king. He had 37 men around him called his mighty men. Mighty men. You can read accounts about where one of his mighty men would go down into a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion with his bare hands. You can read an account of where three of his mighty men, while David was on the run from the king at that time, King Saul, that three of his mighty men broke through the the battle line. They went to a well and they got him water and they brought it all the way back at the risk of their life so that they could serve him. They were fierce and they were loyal and Uriah was one of those men. So David comes up with a scheme. He calls for Uriah to come home from the battlefront. And Uriah comes into the palace and he says, Uriah, how's it going? And Uriah talks about how it's going on the battlefield and everything, and he enjoys the company of David. David says, well, you know, it's gotten late. You shouldn't go back to the battlefield now. Go home and uh, wash your feet. In other words, go home and kick your feet up. Go home and take a shower. Go home and eat. Go home and enjoy your wife. And Uriah says, no. I can't do that. Oh, king, you're an old soldier, you know. I can't do that. I, don't, I can't do that while there are men out there dying. I can't go and have these comforts. So David says, hmm, what am I going to do? Scheming. Sin upon sin. Yet another offense. Against Uriah, he gets him drunk. He gets him... He, they feast, and he, he just keeps the wine glass full. And then he thinks, now he'll lose, he'll drop his defenses, he'll kind of say, oh, you know, I'm going to go home now. And he finds that he, is, he sleeps on the steps, still not going home. Now David, his plan is falling apart. So he's got one more ace up his sleeve, and he plays it. He says, you're right, I guess you're right. You've got to go back to the battlefield. All right, thank you, soldier. See you later. And then he sends, he says, by the way, deliver this message to the commander. And he delivers a message to the commander that says, put Uriah on the very front line. Put him very close to the archers. Put him, put, put this mighty man loyal to me and fierce in the heat of battle i.e. send him on a suicide mission. And he dies. And the commander sends word back, by the way, David, we got so close to the wall that they threw a rock on some of our soldiers, and I know that that's not a good thing, not very good strategy, but uh, Uriah's dead. Oh, that's battle, that happens. 
David has no sense, as it were, of guilt and shame. And yet here in the Psalms, in the Psalm it says in verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. There was a point where David begins to, to feel, as we do, that he has committed a grievous sin. And when he's confronted by the last character that comes on stage, Nathan, who tells this story of a little lamb that was basically robbed by a man who had thousands, thousands of animals. And he demands that man's life because of his unrighteousness. And then Nathan confronts him and says, you've done worse than that. You've taken a man's wife, then you've taken a man's life, but there's still something worse than that. You did it out of your pride. You did it out of your own self-reliance. There's a sin behind the sin. Um, In the book, Sexual Sanity which is a very, very helpful book for those who struggle, uh, particularly with pornography. The author says this, you must start with the fact that all sexual sin is bound up in pride. Our pride drives us to consume others, to be comfortable exploiting them for our own pleasure. Pride leads us to covet other men's wives or other men's bodies. When you think about it, coveting is really just pride as it relates to others. It is because we think so highly of ourselves that we decide they shouldn't have that. I should have that. And we take it. Pride is utterly committed to exalting ourself and our power over others. And at the core, it is radically against God. C.J. Mahaney says, Pride is contending for supremacy with God and lifting up our hearts against Him. As pride is the root of all sin, any hope, any hope of overcoming our sexual struggles requires us to engage in an all-out war against our pride. It began with Adam. Adam's story of shame is that before he committed the sin of taking the forbidden fruit, the one thing that God denied him, before he took the fruit, before he did a do not. Adam, do not, the one thing I'm telling you to do not is do not take that fruit. Before he did that, he committed a more grievous sin. He committed a grievous sin in his pride. Pride that would say, I want the fruit. I can take the fruit. And it's pride that begins by believing a lie. By telling myself this lie that is really anti-God. The lie that 
God doesn't care for me. God doesn't love me like I need to be loved. God is putting me down. He's holding me back. Why is He denying that one apple from me? It's just an apple. God, you're mean. God, I'm going to take, I'm going to be the king. The sin behind our sin is treason against this king by saying, I can do a better job than you can. It's anti-God. It's pride. And it's relying upon myself now to give me what I desire because I don't think God is very trustworthy. Or I don't think God is going to do it like I want to. And David saw it. It says in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now again, I would love to take more time and unpack that, but what he's saying is, I began to see that my outward actions with Bathsheba, my outward actions of Uriah, my outward actions to try to cover it up, is all traceable back to my pride. And taking what I want. But it's even deeper than that. It's a sin against God. As he says there in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He certainly hurt Uriah. He hurt Bathsheba. He hurt uh, the commander. He hurt his troops. He, he hurt his sons later and the consequences of his sin, and and he hurt a lot of people. But the sin is really more cosmic. It's going against God and His law and His regulations, and it's saying when He gives us the wonderful gifts that He gives to us, I don't want your way, I don't want your gifts, I'm going to do it myself. It's a sin against God. And Adam's story becomes our story. If you look at verse um, verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. We have, as Christians, what is called a doctrine of sin. What is your doctrine of sin? Why do you sin? How can you stop from sinning? And what do you do after you've sinned? How can it be removed? That's your doctrine of sin. And our doctrine of sin is is that sin is so insidious. It is so a part of my flesh that I will struggle even as I am now forgiven, even now as I am born again, even now as I have a new life in Christ and I am His Son and I am His child and that forever and it cannot be taken away from me, even by my sin I am still His Son, but I will always sin. I will always in this life, as long as I have breath, I will struggle, 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 struggle with the flesh. I will struggle with it. Why? Because it's to the bone. Because to my shame, though I am now redeemed to my shame, I am a sinner. I am not simply someone who sins. I am a sinner. And I still confront the king 
wanting my own way and trying to be my own little king and have my own little kingdom. But you know that though we have this blood guilt and it's to the bone, that you're a Christian because your conscience does burn. Or because when you do feel that sense of shame, we now have a son, we now have a place that we can go. And I'm not going to take the time to fill in that third blank with my story, except to say that there was a point in my life where I I felt that I had sinned so grievously, so consciously, that I was not worthy to continue to pursue a calling into the ministry. And I went into a church on a Sunday. And I didn't want to go. I mean, I, I, I felt like I had two choices. It was stop pursuing the call to ministry and probably even give up on Christianity because I had sinned so grievously. Or, after having sinned, turn back to God and see, would He take me? Would He take me back? Because now I'm, I'm foul goods, not even damaged goods. And I determined that on the basis of whatever the preacher preached, I would do. If he stood in the pulpit and he said, you know, you're, a, you're all a bunch of foul sinners, and uh, when you break the law, particularly consciously, against God, you have sinned against God, you need to get out of the ministry, you need to drop out of Christianity, you failed Christianity 101. If he, if he told me anything like that, I would do it. He was preaching on Psalm 51. And he said this, he said, there is no stain so deep, there is no sin so grievous, that it itself cannot be used by God to reveal our unrighteousness and at the same hand reveal that righteousness is found in Christ alone. And that by faith, when we take Christ, we get His righteousness and He takes all of our unrighteousness. The great exchange. What happened for me was verse 13... I left there and said, I will now teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And I've never stopped. I know two rivers you get sometimes to think, well, I really think that he only has one message because he's so redundant. I mean, he kinda, it's kind of like the old Baptist minister who they kept saying, listen, stop talking about immersion in every sermon. And he says, well, okay, you know, all right. Genesis. Genesis 1. And in the beginning... The, the world was formless and void and the Spirit hovered on the waters. Waters! Waters! Have you gone down in the baptismal waters of immersion? But from that day on, I've not stopped telling people that shame and guilt that drives us to see that we are unrighteous, but He is righteous. It points out Him as the the, the, the clean one, the shining one, the holy one, and he says, I have all of this for you. I will cover you. I will take your dirty raiment completely, and I will cover you with my raiment. That 
that sent me back into the pursuit of ministry. It's really the only message that I, that I have at the core. And it's what David said, from this point on, he got it. Now, I've got to, I've got to start landing the plane. And I just want to tell you that what worked for David, what worked for David will most certainly work for us. Most of us never, never go through the depths that David did. Murder, adultery, so many lies, so many lives impacted by that. But what worked for David was repentance. Not, not regret, which is, has more of a flavor of self-pity. Regret is more coming to God. He saw this in, in Saul, a previous king's life, where he says in verse 11, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He saw that happen with King Saul. You can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where Saul offered a, a, a sacrifice where he was not supposed to. He was supposed to wait on Samuel the prophet properly to do it. But his men began to put pressure upon him. And so he succumbed and he did it. And then when confronted, he expressed nothing but remorse and regret, but he didn't repent. He blame shifted, he defended himself, he made excuses, but he didn't own it. And he certainly, what he didn't do was he was talking about, he was trying to avoid all the consequences by his behavior. Repentance says, Lord, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not thinking about the consequences. I'm thinking only about a relationship with you. And I'm confessing not simply my actions, but I'm confessing my heart that has so much sin in it. I'm confessing the pride behind my actions. Or I'm, I'm a, I would, Saul should have confessed, you know what, I wanted to look good in these people's eyes. It was more important how I looked in the soldier's face and the soldier's eyes than it was you, God. So I took control. And I did that. And I'm sorry. And I confess that. And except you change me, I know I'll do it again, but I want you to change me. That's what repentance looks like. Not just mere regret. I've... Um, I also see that there's a second thing here, and that is, is that David was saying he didn't want to simply repeat, or this is make a resolution to give me a second chance and I'll do it differently. He saw that he needed a new heart. If you look at verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What he's asking for here is to be born again. Repent and be born again. And we don't simply have this account to tell us. We have Jesus meeting on a different rooftop with Nicodemus. A priest, a Pharisee, a righteous man in the eyes of the world, a preacher, a good guy, an elder. And Jesus was saying, Nothing that you have done, nothing bad and nothing good will ever get you into the kingdom. It will nothing, 
that the things that you have done good will never resolve your guilt and your shame. You must be born again. You must have a new heart. You must have a new spirit put into you. You must be forgiven. And that forgiveness follows your repentance. The best news that I can tell you is repent. And repent continually. Jesus Christ's first sermon was repent. We look into the apostles after the ascension of Christ. Peter's first sermon was on repentance. Martin Luther in the Reformation, his first theses and his 95 theses that he puts there, he says since Jesus' first words and first sermon was repent, then we must follow that today by making repentance a daily matter, a lifestyle. So there's not something I've simply done in the past or I reserve as a nuclear option when I've done something really, really bad. I can repent every day of things either that I've done, I've left undone, but more importantly, I can, report, I can repent every day of my pride or my self-reliance or my trying to be a king in place of the rightful king who cares for me. I can begin to follow my actions back to the real heart of the matter and say, where is that heart in alliance with God? Is it a hearing with Him? Is it, is it kind of like David Letterman's old Velcro suit, you know, where he would jump against the Velcro wall in the suit and he, just, he would just totally stick there? Am I adhering to Christ and saying, except I adhere to Him, I have no righteousness of my own. But no matter how dark the suit, when I adhere to Him, I have His righteousness. I have His record. I've got it in. If you look at verse 7, if you look at verse 7, it says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Later in verse 8 it says, Hide your face from my sins and then blot out all of my shame or my iniquities. Verse 7 is referring to the practice in Leviticus and Numbers. If you were either a leper or if you had contact with dead things, dead, slimy, rotten corpses, dark things, deeds in the dark. A leper in his foulness could be healed or if you had contact with a dead body or dead things, you could be cleansed by blood being sprinkled from the sacrifice of an innocent lamb. That blood sprinkled on you would make you clean. And David says, I want that. That's what I need. When we hide our face from other people, we tend to see other people many times by their sin. She's a loose woman. He's a drunk. That guy, man, he's got some real problems with his anger. We tend to lose sight of them and just see their sin. And David's saying, God, would you look me in the face? Would you not simply see my sin, but would you see me face to face? God does that for us 
He cleanses us by the shed blood of Christ when we've been handling dead things or we're leprous in our sin. And He does not hide His face from us because on the day of the cross, He hid His face from Christ because He became the dead thing. He became the leper. He became the sinner of the world. And God hid His face and turned His face away. So that now, taking on Christ, He gives us His face. And He garbs us in righteousness. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we take this bread and we take this cup, that we would have a fresh experience of the forgiveness of our sin. This day's sin, this week's sin, this month and year and our life sins. And that you would use this cup and its shed blood to take away the deep, deep stain of shame. And we may still have our memory. We have a story like David that will never go away of our shame. But may we use that shame and hold it before others in the world, not being ashamed of our shame, but to hold that story before the world and say, it's covered, it's covered, it's blotted out. And yours can be too. And there's only one way, and that's as we keep turning, keep turning our face to you who face us and see our sin no more. Lord, use this bread and use this cup, I pray, in Christ's name.